Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode number 41 of the Sour Marilyn Horror Fan Podcast. Indeed. <clears throat> Clear on my throat, sorry. As always, I am one of your co-hosts, Simon. And I'm Lee. As I put, do you know what? We're coming up to October. Yeah. I changed my name on Twitter. Got my spoopy name for the year. Which one? My name is Franken Simon. Oh, Jesus. So I, I left my at as it is. So my at is at zombie underscore Simon, as it always is. But I changed my name because last year it was Bob Skeleton. And this year it's uh, Franken Simon. Wow. So I was like, hell yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is a very different episode to what we normally do. It is indeed. Um, so normally, as every, if you've ever listened to our podcast, if you've been listening to it for the past nine months, you'll know that we normally pick a film to talk about on a Monday. And then every other Friday we do like a five by five. Um, usually the episodes on a Monday are based on one film and one film specifically. Occasionally we'll throw in like a little mini review of something we've watched that week or um, we like last week we did some like news items and stuff. But this week we're going to do like a split episode. So we are still going to cover Nightbreed. So don't don't turn off if you've tuned in thinking this is going to be the Nightbreed episode and it's not. It is very much is still going to be focused on Nightbreed. But the first half of this episode and the reason why we've decided to do the first half is because um, obviously people can then kind of tune in towards the end of the episode if they want to. Um, we will timestamp this the best we can when the episode goes out because we want to talk about Midnight Mass. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we didn't want to do an extra episode because we already have a lot of content coming out in October already. Um, but we felt like we couldn't reduce this show to just a couple of sentences. No. So we're going to do quite an in-depth. So I just want to put it out there. Midnight Mass dropped on Friday. If you haven't seen Midnight Mass or you are planning to see Midnight Mass, from this point forward, there will be, until we stop talking about it, spoilers for Midnight Mass. So What we probably should have done is recorded the bit about Midnight Mass and then recorded the introduction and then split them together so we could tell them at what point the timestamp would be for not to talk about Midnight Mass. Yeah, I mean, in, in fairness, I'll just wait until we finish recording and then I'll just... Write the time down. Okay, fair. That's also smart. <laughs> smart. Shush your face. Um, so, yeah, I think if you're planning to see it or haven't seen it yet, skip ahead. If you have, um, obviously, then we are going to be talking spoilers because I don't really think you can talk about this show and do it justice without talking about all the weird and wonderful stuff that happens in you it. You cannot. So this is your third and final warning that from this point forward, there will be spoilers for... Uh, Midnight Mass, and then after we've discussed that, we'll be going into Nightbreed, which is what this this week's episode is is based on. So um, I should probably, much like I always do with, with these episodes, start with you. So when we did the five by five a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. that was based on our upcoming things that we were excited about. I put Midnight Mass on the list because. As I mentioned at the time, I'm a Stanigan for Flanagan, and I knew it was going to be like legit. Um, but you've never seen anything by Mike Flanagan before, um, have you? This is my favourite thing I've ever seen that has been made by Mike Flanagan. <laughs> um, but so I know we obviously have talked about directors and your like nonchalant kind of attitude towards mm -hmm. directors previously. Um, is that something that you just kind of looked at his projects and just weren't interested in what he made or is it just a case of like it's stuff that has never really crossed your path? Or... I mean mostly it was that he makes horror and previously I didn't watch horror mm. so that was a big part of it. <laughs> 
I mean, you had contemplated watching House on Haunted. I will keep calling that the ha- the Haunting of Hill House, hadn't mm-hmm. you, when it came out? I did not realise that show was three years old, by the way. I Yeah, I thought about it. <sighs> I had thought about watching it. Um, but obviously, yeah, I don't do horror. Because so, everyone I know watched it. Like, so many people. Like, even my family, like, my aunt watched it. My mum, I think, watched the first few episodes as well when she was around at my aunt's house. And everyone could tell me how good it was. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, oh, it's too scary. I can't do this. Okay, bye. <laughs> ben Neck Lady, who this? <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, so, yeah, when this kind of came up, we watched the trailer, didn't we? Yes, we did. Um, so what what was it about this that kind of made you be like, oh, I'll, I'll watch that? Other mm. than the fact that I was like, this is going to be fucking awesome. Mostly you, because you kept banging about how great it was going to be. And I've started watching horror now, so I was kind of like, I'll watch it. Like, sure. And then when we saw the trailer as well, because it was all about religion, I was like, I do like religion. Mm. Not not as like a, a, a life choice, just as like a a movie plot. <laughs> yeah, I feel like religion works really well in horror. Yeah. Um, I think as well, like, I, I'm not going to lie, I'll be completely honest with you. What, I kept bringing this up every day on, like, the run-up to release day. And you kept being like, yeah, we'll watch it. And I was fully expecting it to get to Friday and you being like, I don't want to watch it. Hmm. Um, but we watched it in two sittings, didn't we? We did. So we watched, it's seven episodes, we watched the first four episodes on Friday. Mm-hmm. And then we watched the final three episodes, like, Saturday morning, didn't mm-hmm. we? Like, literally got straight up had a cup of tea and watched the final three episodes. So, we were going to do it in bed and we didn't. I was really sad about that because I was like, it's been a nice, cosy, cuddle in bed. Yeah, but you'd already... Well, I know, because she was so in bed. I was like, it's late now. She says it's late. It was 9am when I got up to finish watching this. Yeah, I got up at like half seven. Anyway, we're getting massively off topic. So what, what were your first impressions when we started watching Midnight Mass? Mostly just, what the fuck? Because I would argue the first maybe two hours of it aren't particularly frightening. They're not They're not particularly scary, are they? I think the first couple of episodes kind of lure you into a false sense of security because nothing really happens in the first couple of episodes that seems out of... Other than the bit with the cats. Um, no, that's not true. First and foremost, that's entirely not true because there's the bit on the island... Where we see the figure for the first time as well. Oh, yeah. But, like, that's not... And all the glowy cat eyes. Yeah. The bit with the cats was horrific. I don't. I won't talk and about it. And the bit it. with the dog as well, the second yeah. episode. Third episode. Was that number three? Yeah. I don't know. It's all merged into one in my head. Yeah. But, like, I I think the... Because f- I've heard a few people... Not I wouldn't necessarily say that they've complained about this. But the, f- the, f- the things that I've seen in the chatter on Twitter is a few people being like... This doesn't, when you first start watching it, it doesn't seem particularly scary. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's supposed to be. No, it's supposed to lure you in and like lull you into like that. Oh, this isn't going to be so bad. Oh, it's just a bit weird. Oh, it's fine. And then slowly but surely it creeps up on you. Yeah, because I, because so for any of you who don't know what the plot is, basically the plot is it's set on an island called Crockett Island, which is off the mainland, population 127 people, and then a preacher turns up named Paul. Father Paul. Father Paul. 
and all these miracles start happening, but they have sort of like dire consequences. And it's kind of the unraveling mystery of who is who is this mysterious priest? Is he like evil? Is he sent from God? Like, are these miracles or is there something like more at play? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought they had a bit of a Wayward Pines vibe when it first started. Do you remember Wayward Pines? Remember that show Vaguely. we watched? Where it's kind of like one of those islands where it's very curtain twitchy. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows, because it's so small, everybody knows everybody's business. Yep. And it feels kind of like Twin Peaks, Wayward Pines, but like Castle Rock as well. It feels like the place that all of Stephen King's stories take place, which I feel was sort of probably deliberate, knowing how big of a fan uh, Mike Flanagan is. But for, if, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going back to you because I don't want to just dominate my thoughts on this. For you, what were your sort of first impressions of what he was or what he could be? Basically, what I'm trying to say is, could you preempt how this was going to end by the way it started? No. So I think I figured out maybe that was about episode three, episode two. It really fucking pissed me off how quickly you figured it out. (laughs) I figured out who he was. And I'd kind of started to figure out the major plot device of like what was going on Mm -hmm. quite early. But I don't know if that was just purely because I was sat there looking for it. Mm-hmm. Or if it was quite obvious. Because I don't know anyone else who's seen it. I can't ask them how long, how, how long it took yeah. them to figure it out. Um, so yeah, I started unravelling it quite quickly. But I liked that because they gave you enough to start unravelling it. Or believe you'd kind of started to unravel mm-hmm. it. And then you get the payoff in kind of like episode 6, episode 5, episode 6. When you finally find out what is actually who he actually is, yeah, I think he reveals himself in episode four or episode three. It's fairly early into the show that he reveals who he is. Mm. Um, but this is the thing that I said to you: Mike Flanagan is such a fucking prick, and I mean that with the greatest of respects. He's such a cheeky bastard because the opening shot has the church sign that says "Welcome back." Monsignor Pruitt. So, for those of you that have seen it, obviously the revelation is that Father Paul is the, is the Monsignor is the Monsignor of the church on the island. So <laughs> they thought he was dying. He took a trip to Jerusalem, and they thought he was going to die there. And he becomes he comes across a divine miracle that helps him to basically like turn back time. Yeah, and he is revealed to be the younger version of this thing but that's so clever because as you said you don't think about it because the the people on the island are expecting the monsignor to come back mm-hmm. they're preparing for his return but the way when the story reveals it it's so clever when you think about it you're like this motherfucker told us from the first frame who this guy is mm-hmm. and it's so clever and i thought there's a lot of those little hints but like you made a really excellent point didn't you because you said that they like the revelation should have been easier to spot for the people on the island than it was because there's people on the island that are of a certain age mm-hmm. that would have known him when he was younger yeah so a lot of a lot of the island residents are older mm-hmm. so there are still like teenagers and young people and people in like their 20s and 30s but a lot of the residents are kind of like i'd say about 40 or older mm-hmm. And like the Monsignor is what he was supposed to be. He's in maybe like his eighties. Yeah, late late seventies, early eighties. Late seventies, early eighties. And when we meet Father Paul, he's, Father Paul, yeah, he's like in his thirties. 
He's a late 30s, maybe early 40s. Late 30s, early 40s. So he's gone back 40 years. Yeah. Which means that a lot of the people on this island who are 40 years and older would remember Father Paul, uh, Monsignor Pruitt, at that age. Yeah, like Riley's parents, the main characters, Riley's definitely would have done. should have recognised him. Um, Bev should have recognised him, because I know she's not as old, but they seem to be quite close from mm. everything we hear about her character. Um, the mayor probably should have recognised him. The only character who we know outright acknowledges that she knows who he is is um, Sarah Gunners and Gunners. Sarah's Dunnings? mum, mum Millie, Molly, Millie, Molly, Millie. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, Mildred, Mildred. Yeah, Millie. Yeah. Everyone calls her. Um, she's the only person because when he first shows up, she calls because he's is he called Paul Pruitt. No, no, John. John. It's John Paul Pruitt. John Paul Pruitt, because she calls him John when she first sees him. She mm. goes, John? And because she has, her character has Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. Her daughter goes, no, 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 no. This is past, this is Monsignor Pruitt's replacement. Mm-hmm. Father Paul. And so you're just kind of led to believe it's like her mind just playing a trick on her and she thinks it's who she's expecting it to be mm-hmm. and it's not. But my main point was, I think it was that episode where we meet Millie for the first time was when I said, it makes no sense that this is not Monsignor because as far as we're concerned at this point, the Monsignor is exceedingly unwell. He's in hospital on the island. He's in the mainland, isn't he? Yeah, on the mainland, sorry. And Father Paul keeps saying, oh, the Monsignor spoke about you. Oh, the Monsignor spoke about you. Oh, he told me this about you. He told me that about you. He told them... like. the Monsignor apparently has told Father Paul everything you would ever need to know about every person who lives on this island, which is not feasible. Mm-hmm. So it was the only explanation my brain came up with was this has to be the same person, just somehow younger. Yeah, and I think when the revelation comes at the end of who he is in relation to her mm-hmm. and Sarah, it makes sense that, that she she's the first the person, person to see him. To, yeah, to recognise him. Because I think there's a there's a... There's a comment that's made by... Sarah. No, 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 no. The island drunk. Oh, Joe Colley. Joe Colley. When he sees the picture of a young Monsignor and he goes, oh, you look like him. You mm. could be his son. And like, and Because then he makes it a flippant joke about how, you know, they all knew he wasn't as virtuous as he pretended to yeah. be. So I think potentially the rest of the islands have kind of just gone, oh. Yeah, they've kind of just assumed. Just assumed that he yeah. is the Monsignor's illegitimate son who just happened to also become a priest, I guess. Mm. It's a family business, I guess. Sure. One thing I never really considered, but now I'm now we're talking about it, and this is the genius again of Mike Flanagan, is that now that we're actually talking about it and talking about the characters that he gravitates toward, it seems like every character that he gravitates towards Mm -hmm. or gravitates towards him, he has some kind of past with Mm -hmm. or they're looking for something in their life to kind (coughs) of like... There's something there that they're they're like atoning for. Mm -hmm. Because obviously when him and Riley, obviously we find out at the beginning, one of the first things we see is Riley in that car accident where he kills the girl. I wouldn't call it a car accident. Wow. He wasn't involved in an accident. He murdered a girl because he was drunk driving. He fell asleep at the wheel. It's the scene of a car crash, isn't it? 
Um, but he says to him, obviously, that he knew the Montina when he was a child mm. um, because he was an altar boy and they had like quite a good relationship. Like he trusted him and, and stuff like that. And then obviously with Joe Collie, we find out that he shot uh, Lisa in the back mm-hmm. and caused her to be paralysed. Um, obviously, Erin ran away when she was younger and she was saying that the thing that saved her life was having a baby. And it's like all of these characters seem to be brought back to the island or in some way responsible for something and it doesn't seem by accident that these are the characters that cross paths with Mm. him the thing that got me as well is with the the miracles that are performed so first miracle we we realistically see aside from obviously um riley's mum's eyesight coming back Mm -hmm. He just doesn't wear glasses and he wasn't blind, he just doesn't need to wear glasses anymore. It's not really that big of a miracle. Um, is Lisa's legs mm. working again. And I feel like that's slightly purposeful because Lisa goes to church every single day. She is devout. I feel like her and the Montagnol would have been very, very close because mm-hmm. of the amount of time she spent at church. Yes. Um <clears throat> The second miracle is obviously Sarah's mum. Well, I say miracle. It's not classed as a miracle by any of the townspeople, but it's her. And obviously their relationship as it unfolds later on, it makes sense that it would be her. And those are kind of the two main miracles he Mm -hmm. performs. And it made sense that it would be those two characters because obviously of his connection to them. Yeah. It's same with Riley because of his connection to Riley. Like they were, he was an older boy when he was younger. Him and the Monsignor would have been very close. There's the story we hear as well about the the mouse. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think the mir- the people who witness uh, who are given miracles. I say in in finger. Hmm. What are they called? Air quotes. Air quotes. Thank you. And I was like finger turnies. <laughs> um. Are all people who are important to the Monsignor? Does that yeah. make sense? And I think also as well, people that would spread the word for him because of those relationships, maybe. I don't think it's ever anything to do with that so much as it is him choosing people who he feels like are worthy mm. of their. Oh, well, not even people who are worthy, people who he feels deserve that second chance. Do we. I know, obviously, we're going to talk about the thing in a minute, like, that he encounters. Is it ever, like, expressly said how he gets his abilities? Is it because of the encounter that he has in the cave? What do you mean his abilities? Well, the fact that he can make, like, Lisa walk again, the fact that he can, like... It's the blood. It's all in the blood. Right, okay. Everything yeah, because that's what I was thinking. Because I, I did... I was thinking that. I was like, yeah, because she explains, obviously, like, the blood is... In some cases, the taker away, and in some cases, the giver. But obviously, it's framed as him doing it. So I was like, yeah, he doesn't actually have any powers, does he? It's all the, I want to say, divine blood. We have some disagreement on this. <laughs> so in the show, the creature is consistently repeated. Well, you called... need to kind of explain to him where the creature comes from. He can't just say the creature. Well, they've, seen, they've listened to this. They've seen the show. Well, yeah, but... But just in case you don't know, so in case you're listening to this and how much show you've no interest is, when the Monsignor goes on his trip to Jerusalem, he gets lost while at the Wailing Wall. He finds himself in a cave and he is attacked by 
a creature which he believes to be an angel is a big winged hairless creature and he is renewed mm-hmm. goes back to his youth he heals he doesn't die as he said he becomes the perfect version of himself becomes that's perfect what they're referred to as aren't they so the creature in the show is consistently repeated refer, referred to as the angel mm-hmm. this has caused a little bit of discontent in our house because i am adamant it is not an angel Adamant is a freaking vampire. You are very on board with the angel. Yeah, I just think the angel, like, the whole angel thing makes sense. Like, to me, to me, it makes sense because it's like the divinity of the blood and, like, the whole religious aspect of the show being as it is. Like, so- it makes sense for the creature to be, like, an angel. It makes way more sense in my head for it to be an angel than a vampire because vampires are generally, like... The anti-god. Yeah. And this is... So, right, this is the point I've been consistently trying to make in regards to this show. Is that the the angel isn't an angel. I say vampire because it's the closest thing we could think to. But also uh, consider potentially a demon. Mm. And my argument is that if it is an angel, then the show takes on a very different aim. Because it would be that this was, in fact, God's will. Mm-hmm. This was his plan all along, and he wanted this community to basically die. Mm-hmm. The way I see it is that the entire point of this story is the idea of twisting religion to fit your own narrative. So they say it's an angel, because in the Bible it says that, you know... Be not afraid is what every angel says whenever you, anyone meets them because they are terrifying to look mm-hmm. upon. <laughs> Which, you know, I get it. Okay, I'm terrifying to <laughs> now look upon in the morning. Now that you've said that, the fucking poster for this mo- this show is a massive spoiler then. Oh, is it? Because the fucking quote, the tagline on the poster says, be not afraid. Yeah, it's literally what every angel <laughs> in the Bible, when they present themselves to a human, say... Be not afraid, I am an angel. I think they say, I am an angel of God pretty much consistently as well. Um, but so, because of that in the Bible, <clears throat> they've all basically gone, he has wings, he's scary. I'm assuming it's a he for the sake of things. I think it's a Metatron. I think it's like a fucking I don't, I mean, Alan Rickman situation. Okay, they have wings <laughs> and they are scary. Um, so, the the religious people have all gone, angel, obviously. And because of the powers that are bestowed upon Father Paul and the Monsignor, and he can hear <coughs> the angel as well. Like he can yeah. hear the angel telling him what to do. He believes devoutly that this is an angel, so he does what the angel tells him to do. My view of it is, is that they're twisting the words of the Bible to mm-hmm. fit with what they are presented with. So it's scary. It's an angel. Um, it's blood heals. It it's a miracle. It's a gift from God. Um, there's so many points in this where you're like, this is not... This is not... It's not good. Because this is the thing as well. Is By biblical standards, angels don't have free will. They work purely on the the power of God. So God tells them what to do, they do it. And nothing in context of this show makes sense as a message from God. Mm-hmm. 
as a non-religious person. Yeah, but then there's also the other side of it where, like, you have to look at, like, everything that... Sh- everything that... I know what you're saying about, obviously, them twisting it. And, like, the Bev character, especially, Bev Keen, cunt of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that's presented is something that she sees it in the Bible. And I know that you say that she orchestrates a lot of it, but her blind faith believes that the angel is there because this is God's will, because it's all, everything that is happening to the island are things that have, like, are relevant to things that have happened in the Bible. So it depends on which way you look at it. But religion in this show is almost presented as a funhouse mirror. Like, if you look into it at the right angle, it makes sense and it is what you want it to be. The thing is, though, is... With the Bev character and with what you're saying about, well, it could be that this is actually biblical and she's reading from the Bible because that's what's presenting itself. There's a point in this show during the parent-teacher meeting where uh, Sheriff... Hassan. Hassan, thank you. And brings up them handing out the Bible in the school Mm -hmm. because he is Muslim. Yes, he is. His son is Muslim and that's how he raised him. And he makes a point about the fact that it's a public school which they shouldn't be giving anyone religion. And he tries to explain that it's not that he doesn't like the Bible. It's not that he doesn't like Jesus. But he is uncomfortable with the idea of religion being forced down their throat. Mm -hmm. One specific religion being forced down the throats of students. And this, I think, is the main thing that always makes me think about Bev's character in the way of, like, twisting the Bible to show her needs. She twists everything he says yeah. and makes him the villain of the piece. Mm-hmm. And she uses the Bible to do it. And this is the thing with Bev's character because she brought up about the fires and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Not and... recently. This was a conversation <laughs> we had earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were talking about earlier today. The fires, she starts and then once they've started, she says like the Bible says. Yeah. So she makes it happen and then twists what is happening to match what the Bible is saying. Yeah. And I think, like, I'm not, I'm not specifically saying it's a vampire because I just say vampire because blood, sunlight, immortality, uh, peak body conditions are all generally mm-hmm. vampiric traits. But what, what I am saying is that it is not an angelic presence. Mm-hmm. See, I think the great thing about this show is everybody will get something differently out of it, depending mm. on your views on religion. If you were, if you were raised Christian, Catholic, Muslim, Jewish, if you're an atheist, like Satanist, whatever, I think no matter what, if you go into this with your views on religion, you will come out of it feeling however you want to feel. Mm. I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way to, unless Mike Flanagan expressly comes out and says. This is exactly what I meant. This is exactly how it should be interpreted. I think you can take it however you want. And your specific views on religion and faith and things like that will guide you in how you feel about that. Um, I personally choose to believe that it is an angel because that's how the show presents it. And it makes sense in the context of the story to myself. Yeah. If you choose to believe it's something else, then that's... You know, but that's. I, I think... would like to know what other people think, though, because obviously we're we're on very much opposite sides of the board. I mm-hmm. would love to see where other people well, fall on this. 
Werewolf. I yeah. mean, unlikely. It's a hairless werewolf. Unlikely, but fair. It's a sphinx werewolf. It's a sphinx werewolf. <laughs> um, what? So I'm going to ask you because uh-huh. obviously the first four episodes of this show is very slow, Bernie. How did you feel about the second half of the series where uh-huh. everything kicks into motion? Everything just kicked the fuck up, didn't it? Those last two episodes are like. What did you think shit. of the? Uh, the, I think it's the second to last episode the episode where he reveals the plan so he tells everyone who he is reveals the angel and then the Jonestown stuff happens oh man that was fucking uncomfortable to watch like because at this point it's become a cult that's what has happened. Words that no one ever uses. No in this one show. ever uses the word. Very cult. clever that they no one ever uses that word. But it does very much take on the front of, of a cult, especially with the Kool Aid. Yeah. Oh man. <clears throat> but it is. It's one of those weird situations because uh, to use the term cult for this and and things such as Jonestown. They take somebody on their word that if they drink the Kool-Aid, they pass mm-hmm. away, they will be going to heaven. Mm-hmm. That's it. In this, they watch somebody drink, die, and then come back from the dead. Which means like, a lot of your doubts, if you are devout and you believe that what you are being told is true, and you know you have absolute faith, and in this case, in, in the Monsignor or Father Paul, um... You've been given actual physical proof that what he is saying is true. Mm-hmm. So I can I kind of understand with a lot of the people there they because they all not all of them some people still choose not to um, doesn't go so well for those people but um, I can see why people would choose to drink and die because they've been given concrete evidentiary proof that what they're being told is true. Mm-hmm. Like, I wouldn't drink it, personally. Although, saying that, like, I, if I'm living on the con- or the concept that it's a vampire, I probably would have quite liked to be a vampire. Mm. The most violent church scene since Kingsman, maybe? Yeah. It's it's horrifying to watch. And it's... The thing is, is it's... It's not even all of the horrible things that are happening, in all honesty. So, it's... Giving out the drink is the mayor and his wife who are Lisa's parents and they give Lisa a drink and then they're trying to encourage her to drink and that was the like the bit of the scene for me that was like honestly I was like this is horrific this is so horrible to watch like all of the gore and that like I'm not a big gore fan anyway all the violence didn't affect me as much as that moment did yeah and i think because it was just horrible to watch like i get it because in their heads they've seen evidentiary proof they know what they're being told is true yeah but to try and coerce your child yeah the thing the thing i found like fascinating about this like and this is one thing that mike flanagan does really well the moments of violence in this show are nowhere near as horrifying all of the most horrifying moments in this show take place in the quieter moments of the show. Mm. Like, the conversations. Like, some of the most frightening scenes. Like, the scene where there's one scene, I think it's maybe episode three or four, where Riley and Father Paul are having the conversation. And he, you see for the first time him lose control when he says, No, you are lying to me. 
I demand absolute honesty from you and you see that rage in him. Mm. And then there's the other scene where he's like recruiting the soldiers of God when he gives that whole big speech about how they're all soldiers of God and how they need to go out and like this is a time of rebirth and you see him become more and more unhinged. And it's those and like all of the moments with Bev when you see her doing like the really insidious things. It's so like it's that kind of like it's that kind of like horror, like when you watch a film like Get Out, mm. it's, it's those insidious. little quiet, like under the surface moments of horror where you're just like shit is about to pop off, mm. but everything is so quiet and so calm. You're just waiting for that explosion of like something is simmering, constantly simmering under the surface. And yeah, that church scene is one of the most horrifying things like I put a thing on my Instagram about this show yesterday and one of my friends because I'd said how it scared me and one of my friends was like you like capital letters were scared and I was like yeah and like we've had this conversation a few times like there are very few things in life that scare me like genuinely when it comes to like a film standpoint two of the only films that I've ever seen in my entire life that have left me massively unsettled after I've seen them are The Exorcist, which we'll be covering next week, um, R.I.P. Me, and The Sacrament, mm. both of which hinge on religion. Mm. And re- like the, the concept of religion itself doesn't frighten me, mm. but the lengths that people are willing to go to in the name of religion does. And that's what is horrifying about this show. Well, leading on from that, I do want to talk about the ending of this show. Yeah. So when you get to the final episode and everything's kind of gone to shit, People have all become these weird blood-drinking creatures. Uh-huh. There is a, a kind of a scene that happens between Bev and Father Paul. So she summons them all back to basically go into the rec centre to hide from the sun. Yeah. And there's a showdown between her and Father Paul where he basically says that he was wrong. Yeah. And that this is not God's will. He made a mistake. He was, he basically, without saying the words, says, I was tricked. Yeah. This isn't God's will. This was never the plan. Like, I've made a horrific mistake. We should have never done this. Because he initially reveals the reason why he did it was because he wanted more time with his wife and his daughter. Well, not his wife. Wow. So Sarah is, for anyone who doesn't know, Sarah is Father Paul, well, the Monsignor's daughter. So he had an an affair with her mum. And Sarah's the, like, nurse on the island. The nurse on the island. Um, and Bev's response is, you are my final challenge. Mm. You are the final thing in my way. If you won't lead us, I will. And I think this is a really great moment of the the kind of the difference between having faith and having blind faith. Mm -hmm. Because Bev refuses to see that what is happening is wrong. Because she, she has nothing else. She has her faith and her faith alone and she relies on it so strongly that she will believe anything Mm. because otherwise she has nothing. Yeah. But I think the scene that leads into this perfectly demonstrates that because just before this scene happens, there's the guy... No, that's that's after this scene. So they have that face-off where she's like, if you won't lead them, I will. And then they go to their separate side. So he's by the church. She's at the rec centre. 
and all of the the residents of the island mm. show up and um one of the congregation howard howard has turned somebody who was not agreed to be turned basically no howard was turned oh howard, howard was turned, turned by, by sturge sturge sorry yeah sturge turned somebody who was not agreed to be turned howard and um she basically makes a comment about how she's never seen him at church before mm. um and all of this and he kind of breaks down because he murdered his wife and daughters in like a fen- frenzy for blood and Bev's response is if you'd have come to church you would have known you could save them mm. this is all your fault and basically tells Sturge that he can't come into the rack centre and he'll have to face the sun which will kill him Yeah. and she forces Sturge to take him away and then um, Father Paul comes down and says you're welcome in the church um yeah, because that's when it's revealed that he's Sarah's father. Yeah. And he's like, you're welcome. You're one of the flock. Mm. You can come with us. Anybody who doesn't want to follow Bev can come and find sanctuary in the church. The doors are always open. And it's one of those moments where you kind of see the clear divide of while what Father Paul did was wrong and was selfish... He's realised his mistake and he's accepted that he was wrong and he took things on faith he shouldn't have. And he, But the only reason he believed in those things as faith was because he wanted to believe in hopes that he could save Millie and spend time with Sarah well, and be the father he never got to be because he never admitted he was her dad. Yeah. Um, whereas Bev refuses to accept any responsibility. It's all God's will. Um, she is right because God is right and that's the end of the line but she can make the decisions on who should be accepted and who shouldn't but in the end <coughs> she she faces the thing that we all do when we die allegedly because when she realises at the end that she's about to die and that's it she starts to panic and she starts trying to dig a hole for herself and that's kind of that really great moment of you see her potentially losing faith and wondering to herself where she's going to end up and she starts digging that hole for herself in the beach and that to me per was the perfect summation of what happens to someone when their faith fails mm. them and it was just such a perfect moment of her burning up in the sun while trying to get more time on earth <laughs> because is, she's terrified of where she's going to go bev i hate bev i hate her so much but she is potentially one of my favorite characters in this show because she is so insidious and twisted. Incredibly well written. But And the thing is, is everybody seems to know that that's who she is and what she is. But nobody says anything to her. Mm. She's just allowed to continuously get away with it. And it's really interesting. And you brought up a really interesting point when you were walking home the other day about her. About her treatment of um, Sheriff Hassan. Mm. So... I mean, there's a few points in this where she's quite horrible to him. But quite specifically, at the very, very, very end when she shoots him, she... I mean, she's kind of kept a lid on her... uh, I wouldn't say kept a lid. Kept it quite PC on her views of him as a person throughout most of the show. But as she shoots him, she calls him a terrorist. And it's the only time 
and she kind of you see her true colours properly and you brought up a really interesting fact about the fact that we never see her be racist up until this point mm-hmm. and because we, we were talking about it and the thing is is I, I don't think Bev's racist in the traditional sense of racism yeah Bev has a problem with Hassan because he's not Christian. Mm-hmm. It never had anything to do because, like you said, there's a a mixed race couple on the island. Yeah, the mayor, in fact, and his wife. <clears throat> um, but yeah, she she keeps this kind of lid on everything. But if you aren't Christian, then it's fine. Mm. And that's really interesting to me because. I've got quite lucky in my life of most of the religious people that I've ever interacted with have been perfectly lovely. They have, a few of them have had views that I have heavily disagreed with and I no longer speak to them because of it, but they've never been outwardly horrific like that. Yeah. And like insidious. And it was really interesting because I'm sure they exist, but I've never come across it. And I think it's because I'm in the, the the lucky frame of I'm I'm white. Like, yeah, I mean, I've had a few comments about my my gender, but um, I'm quite lucky in the way that that's never really been an issue. The closest I've ever had with anybody is the fact that I don't practice a religion. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder, especially when you are people of different religions, how that affects your relationship with people. Yeah, it's not something I've ever given a great deal no. of thought to, but... Because I'm non-religious and most of my friends are non-religious and the people who I am friends with who practice religion, we've never really discussed it unless <clears> like, <throat> um, it's affected anything we're doing. So like with work... Um... <clears throat> I mean, now that you've said it, actually, come to think of it, when I was in school, I went to a Church of England school. I, you know, That's not a secret. Good, like Everybody knows school. that. But like, I had people in my school that were Muslim, I, I, I don't want to speak out to it, I think it's Muslims that celebrate Ramadan, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it is, yeah, because... Um... Or is it Sikhs, sorry? Oh. One of the, what, there's, there's one of the... Ramadan's, I'm pretty confident. Oh, no, wait. What's the one where they can't eat? That's... Is that Ramadan? Yeah. Muslim, because I'm, I'm 100% sure forehead... Yeah, no, he does, because we we all don't eat on the floor whenever it's Ramadan. Yeah. One of our team will eat, we'll go and, like, hide ourselves away so we don't have to eat in front of him, because we feel really cruel. <laughs> because this is the thing that I found really interesting, now that you've mentioned it, is I had, like, Muslim and Sikh friends when I was in school, but we were all, because we went to a Church of England school, we expected to go to church. Mm. And, like, the reli- like, the main religious topics taught in religious education were Christian Christianity. And I was like... I mean, to be fair, they accepted everybody at that school. Like, you didn't have to be Church of England because I wasn't. Mm. But I think the fact that if you're, like, I guess what I'm saying is, if you're willing to accept people from all walks of life into your school, then surely you shouldn't be forcing people to go to church for assemblies and have tunnel vision when it comes to your religion. No, it's one of those awkward ones because it's a COE school. They have people have chosen to spend send their child to a Church of England school. Yeah. Knowing that they will be expected to study the Bible, mm. go to church. Yeah, that was a, a very strange one. <laughs> yeah, we. Um, I did not go to a CRE school. I went to a tech <clears throat> school, but um, we had a CRE school near us. Um, one thing I will say about this show, I, I mean, it's the last big topic I want to 
get on before we wrap this up. Were you expecting the show to be as emotional as it was? No. I cried like a bitch like three times. Yeah, I cried more times than I wanted to admit during this show. Um, but I think that's one of the great things that Mike Flanagan does, and that's how he builds the horror, is he puts you in an emotionally vulnerable state. So when the horror, the horrific moments hit, they hit that much harder because you're already like vulnerable. And there's a couple of, like, a lot of people have complained that this show is very talky. And yes, like, there are a lot of, like, talking scenes in this show. I think that was my one main problem with this show is there was a lot of monologuing. Mm. So much monologuing. But there are a few in particular. There's that one conversation with Erin and uh, Riley where they talk about what it means, what heaven means and what happens when you die, which I I cried during. Uh. And then there was a couple of moments towards the end where I was, like, in tears. Um, And I definitely, like, wasn't expecting it to be as emotionally resonant as it is Mm. and, like, emotionally relatable. I think the, the show asks a lot of big questions of people, um, not all of them it answers, but I feel like the questions that it asks are open to interpretation, so they don't necessarily need to be answered. As I said before, everybody will take away from this what they want to, hmm. and I think that's a really, really good thing about it. But, I think one other thing I'd like to touch on, because you brought it up when we were watching the show, you actually brought it up while we were watching it, is the character of Lisa, hmm. who's a great character. The girl who plays her is phenomenal. Yeah. When her and Riley's little brother, whose name has completely escaped me... Warren. Warren, are escaping the island, she stops to pray. Mm -hmm. And you made a really interesting point, because you were like, after what you've just witnessed, you still believe in God. And you would still pray. Yeah. And I think so. We we had a we had a discussion about it. And my argument for this moment, in fact, was she she has held on to her faith and she still believes because what she just witnessed wasn't religion. It, it was, was fanaticism. fanaticism. Yeah. And she is like in a lot of uh, Bible stories and stuff like that. She is the true believer. <clears throat> she believes that God exists. She believes that He is both good. And judgy, I think is the best way to put Old Testament God. A little bit vicious. Um, but she still believes because she has to believe that people... That it's all happened for a reason. It was part of God's plan. But also she knows that what happened was not God's plan. And something has happened and has gone wrong. Mm. Sorry, I chuckled when you said she still believes because I had the Tim Capello song. I know you did. I knew exactly why you were chuckling. But like, I found her character really interesting. The fact that she still held on to her faith, Mm. um, even after having witnessed what happened. (sighs) But now you're saying it to me, it makes sense that she would Mm. because of what happens to her, like because of her not being able to walk and then suddenly being able to walk. I don't think even that has anything to do with it. I think it is just that she believes and she is an intrinsically good person, an intrinsically uh, a a faithful person. Mm. And she is one of my favourite characters in the show, along with Bev, because she has such an interesting journey throughout the story. 
and she's also there's a really great scene that kind of shows her view on religion really well and it's when she confronts <sighs> there's too many character names in this show for Joe Connie when she confronts Joe um after she's can walk again and she says to him I forgive you because God would forgive you God is forgiving and he would forgive you for what you've done what you did to me I would also I will also forgive you and she's like but you will never be able to forgive yourself mm. and she is doing what is the righteous thing and the the faith the the following of faith thing as well is to turn the other cheek and forgive people for what they have done mm-hmm. uh, in fact it's even part of the lord's prayer um but she's also still quite wrathful yeah because she's done it knowing full well that her forgiveness will hurt more than her anger and i think that's a really interesting part of her character is she is very much like a lot of characters you meet in the Bible, uh, they are forgiving and loving and kind, but they are all also very wrathful. Yeah. In that they they tend to forgive as a punishment, and I think that's a really interesting thing that comes across in a lot of um, a lot of stories in the Bible. Is forgiveness is often used as a punishment. Mm. And yeah, yeah, I just really like her. I love her character, and I like how it ends with her still holding on to her religion because I think it's it. I'm not a faithful person, but I'd like to believe that if, you know, I would be able to hold on to my faith, even through bad things happening, mm. if I had any, which I don't. But We spent 50 minutes talking about the show. We didn't even talk about Kate Siegel. She's really good, like her. There we go. <laughs> um, overall, how how would you rate the show? Um, I'm going to give it a four. I could have done without the monologuing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of monologues, and I'm I'm not a big fan of talky talky talk talk, as we know from me watching a lot of stuff. <laughs> I don't like overly talky stuff. Yeah. But it's really enjoyable. It's really uh, a difficult watch at times, but it's 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 good. Nice. Where'd you sit? I'm gonna give it a five. Fair. I think it's great. Um, did it make you a Flanagan of Flanagan? I mean, I, sure. Because <laughs> we are going to go back and rewatch. Well, we're going to go back and watch Haunting of Hill House and Blind oh, Manor because we haven't seen them yet. Um, but yeah, I I personally think for me, Mike Flanagan's work. If the man never directed another film in his life, I think I would be happy. If you just step your stage doing like these premium TV shows, because I think his storytelling works better over long form. I don't think this is a story you could tell in no. two hours and do it justice and it really upsets me that he's not going to direct revival they said his version of stephen king's revival was too expensive because there's a lot what a lot of is in this i see in a lot of that mm-hmm. um and it upsets me that he won't get to make that now but yeah uh, for me it's a five i i don't think the man misses ever and i would happily rewatch this again um just don't expect to feel good about yourself after you've watched it no. <laughs> Um, but yeah, thus concludes the uh, Midnight Mass portion of the episode. <laughs> right, ladies and gentlemen, with our Midnight Mass portion of the episode out of the way, we should probably get to the feature part of this episode. We should. Um, so this week's episode was solely supposed to be based on Nightbreed, 
But then Mike Flanagan was like, nah, guys, I want you to think about my content for forever. Um, so, yeah, this week we are covering the 1990 Clive Barker fantasy horror film Nightbreed. Nightbreed. Do your thing. Okay, so, cast-wise, we have do, 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 Craig Sheffer. Hashtag as, not Dar- David Boreanaz. Yeah, not, Dar- not David Boreanaz. As Aaron Boone. Anne Bobby as Laurie Winston. David Cronenberg as Dr. Philip K. Decker. Yes, that David Cronenberg. And yes, that is a reference to who you think it is. Philip K. Dick. Uh, Charles Hayde as Captain Eggerman. Hugh Quashy. Quashy. Quashy yeah. as Detective Joyce. Uh, Hugh Ross as Narcisse. Narcisse? Narcissus? Narcisse. Narcisse, yeah. Doug Bradley as Duck. Duck. Uh, Catherine Chevalier as Rachel. And then... I was trying to find the little girl, but I can't find the little girl on here. Did you say Doug Bradley is Larsberg? Yeah. I mean, I called him Dirk, but sure. <laughs> no, I was looking because there's also another day there she is, and then Kim Robertson is Babette. Why did you call him Dirk? Because that's his name. Oh, I didn't know his name was Dirk Larsberg. Yeah. So uh, Kim Robertson and Nina Robertson played Babette as well. Oh, was she played by Little Twins? She was indeed. That's cute. And there's other characters, but they're not in it a massive amount, and we'll be here for hours if we go through all of the different um, mm-hmm. members of the breed who live at Midian, so we're not yeah. going into that. This movie was directed by... I'm getting to that. This movie was directed by Cl- Clive Barker, and written by Clive Barker. Based on the story by, by Clive, Clive Barker. Barker. Soon to be a major motion picture starring... Clive Barker. Barker. Um, he wrote the theme tune, sang the theme tune, <laughs> um, and it's based on his novel called Cabal. Mm-hmm. And IMDb have left us with this lovely, juicy little synopsis. A troubled young man is drawn into a mythical place called Midian, where a variety of friendly monsters are hiding from humanity. Meanwhile, a sadistic serial killer is looking for a patsy. Also, we didn't mention it, however, but this movie also features a banging score... By, by Danny Elfman. Danny the Elfman. Yeah. Um, that synopsis is a little bit misleading. I'm not going to lie. Why? Is it because it calls them friendly monsters? That's literally what <laughs> my brain is like. <laughs> well, I think, to, I think to be honest. So, uh, okay, right. Let's let's again start with you. So, second time Big Man Clive's been on the, the podcast. He is. He's going to be third in what? How many weeks? Two? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... We established that neither of us have ever read anything by Clive Barker. We have not. But I like a bunch of shit that's based on his mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so after Candyman, mm-hmm. knowing that this was a Clive Barker joint, like, yeah. what were your like thought? Or did you have some expectations? Or did not you, really. Did you be like, oh. not really? Mostly because I know Candyman, who I really love, is quite loosely adapted from the story. Yeah. So I hadn't really gone into it going, where's a Clive Parker? I'm really going to enjoy it. Because I was like, I know Candyman is obviously based on Clive Parker. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not very close to the source material at all. So... See, I do wonder, 
like just as a little sidetrack because of obviously this. So he directed Hellraiser, and Hellraiser came out in 1987. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing he ever directed, and like he adapted his own work. Then obviously this, he started making this in 1988, came out in 1990. Again, wrote it based on one of his books, directed it. And I do wonder if his experience, because this film had a lot of production issues, if his experience on this film hadn't been so bad, whether he would have directed Candyman. And and if there's like an alternate timeline where he directs Candyman and it's not the film that we know it to be. Mm. So in a weird way, his shitty experience on this probably gave us a more Everything iconic... you were saying to me then just reminded me of the John Oliver interview with Stephen Hawking. What? Have you ever seen the thing from it? No. Uh, it's about alternate universes. Right. And then she has a John Oliver interview and John Oliver says to Stephen Hawking, oh, does that mean that there's a universe out there where, I, where I'm as smart as you? <laughs> and Stephen Hawking goes, yes, there's also one where you're funny. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean, though? Like, there is... Yeah. I don't know if it's from an actual interview or if it's just a meme, but I feel like it's from a real interview because Stephen Hawking is sassy. Well, was. Was sassy. I mean, he still is sassy. We have plenty of proof of it. Mm. Um, But yeah, so you didn't really know anything about this movie going into it, did you? Our new Monsters Underground City Cradle of Filth album. That's about (laughs) it. Yeah, we'll talk about the Cradle of Filth album later. Um, So... What were your first impressions of this movie, watching it? Like, other than the fact that you were utterly confused. I was like, what a lot of... What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? That was most of my view of this movie. But I, like... Yeah, it was a film I watched. It was reasonably fun. There's a lot of explosions. I like an explosion. Yeah. So we watched a director's cut of this, because there's a few different cuts of this movie. So... Nightbreed is a movie that did really poorly when it came out. Um, Fox basically took the movie away after test audiences from Clive Barker, basically cut it to pieces and tried to market it as a slasher movie. So I think they wanted to focus more on the Decker character, which is played by David Cronenberg, and make it a more run-of-the-mill slasher movie and kind of not really focus on the monster side of it. Mm. Um, And then over the years... A lot of fans heard rumours and whispers that there was like a lot of footage that had been cut and that there may be like a fabled alternate cut. So long story short, they basically found like a bunch of alternate footage on like videotapes that had been degrading like all over the world. And they put together what was known as the Cabal Cut, which was nearly three hours long. You can buy the Cabal Cut on Blu-ray. It's very hard to get hold of now. And then they screened it for a few places and then they reworked it again into what's known as the director's cut, which is the version we watched, which is on the Arrow release, which is about two hours long. Um, Yeah, it's two hours exactly, I think. And it's kind of the more widely... Wait, there's a longer version of this film? Yeah, there's a version of this movie that's like nearly three hours long. Do we get more stuff about Midian so it's a little bit less yeah, confusing? Yeah, so it's like basically just Midian stuff. Oh, um, but I've Because I've never seen the Cabal cut. Um, and this is the first time I've seen the director's cut. Um, but the Blu-ray we we bought has got the theatrical cut and the director's cut on it. The, the director's cut's 18 minutes longer and the majority of it is all Midian stuff. Because mm. um, I think the problem that the studio had was that Clive Barker, obviously Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2 by this point had both come out. Both were massively successful. Um, and like Clive Barker was like really on the rise at that point. People were really starting to... Uh, respond to his work and but he had a contract where he had to deliver an r-rated film 
Um, so he couldn't make it as gory as Hellraiser. And I think they had issues with kind of marketing it, which I'm sure from having just watched it, you can understand mm. in 1990, like how the fuck do you market this movie? So they obviously tried to market it more heavily as a slasher movie. But he said, basically, in interviews, Clive Barker's called this one of the most like excruciating experiences of his life because he felt like, basically, his work had been taken away from him um, and he didn't recognise the like end product. Mm-hmm. But for yourself, obviously, I know that you said that you were confused. What did you think of like the overall story? Like, Was it a story... Because like, it's hard to know with you what sort of things you will and won't respond to. But, like, the idea of, like, Midian and this place and sort of all this sort of stuff, like, what what were your thoughts, like, on, on the film? So, it's a weird one, because this film plays very much of a film of two parts. So, it, it kind of plays out, like, two people had two very different ideas, and they went, let's just put them together. Yeah. Fuck it. And that's kind of how it's... Because there's the, the plot line of Decker and then there's the plot line of Midian. And while they do meet in the middle, there's no real rhyme, reason or point to them meeting up with each other. Yeah. And I think that's my major issue with this film is that it makes very little sense with the context you're given in the movie why these two separate things are existing at the same time. Yeah, and the annoying thing is, for me personally, I think the Dr. Decker stuff is given way too much time. Oh, yeah. So I think, I think the whole subplot with Decker being the serial killer is like way less interesting than the Midian stuff. Yeah, there's zero reason for that plot line. It really, I'm just like, I'd have much preferred to have a straight-up movie just about Midian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, still keep the pictures and torches... Um, pictures and torches? Torches and pitchforks... Angle. Angle, to, like, for the ending. But it would have been far more interesting to just have it play out as more of a straight-up... It's about Midian, it's about the monsters. It's about Boone's character and how he ends up there. Because the thing is, is the only thing you would need to take out of this entire thing is just Decker. Mm-hmm. And you could still keep him. Just take out the serial killer plotline. Yeah. Because that plot line adds nothing to the story. Mm. But there being a reason for the police to be hunting down... Boone. Boone. There is zero reason for that plot line to exist. They could have so easily made that literally anything else. He could have robbed a bank. Fucking accidentally killed someone. Robbed a fucking petrol station. Ooh, topical. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's always what happens in American films that they like hold yeah. up a like drugstore or something. I don't know, but there's so many other ways you could have led to the police being hunting him down, and the police, that's how the police find Midian. Mm. That the entire subplot with Decker just really pisses me off because it's completely pointless. Oh, Button Eye Joe. Oh, Button Eye Joe. And the thing is, is when we first met him, I thought because obviously he's like one of the first characters you meet in the film, and I was like, as his serial killer counterpart, not actually Decker. Mm. I thought, oh, it's one of the monsters from Midian. Like, that's what my brain thought. And I was like, oh, maybe that's how the police end up at Midian. Is one of them has, like, escaped and is murdering people. And that's how we wind up with, like, them coming to Midian. Yeah. Nope. Nope, it's just a normal psychologist who's fucking murdering people. I also, I don't know if this is true, because I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it ever has been revealed, but 
I do kind of wonder if the Decker stuff was expanded when they got Cronenberg on board. Because they were like, we have David Cronenberg. We have to have him doing stuff. We can't just have him in like this movie for 10 minutes. I have no idea. Or do you find David Cronenberg creepier without the mask on? Yeah. Because the, 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 the Decker mask is creepy, right? Like, the mask that he wears with the button eyes and the zip mouth is, like, super creepy, right? It is super creepy. But I find David Cronenberg, like, unsettling anyway. Like, I think he's, like, a super creepy dude anyway. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's a fucking amazing filmmaker. I love his films. I just think he's, like, there's just something really fucking creepy about him. Um, but, yeah, he's a very strange man. But yeah, I definitely think that the subplot with Decker is not unnecessary. It just overshadows a lot of the movie when it doesn't need to. And it kind of plays like I feel like it plays very heavily into like Clive Barker's. Yeah, Clive Barker's like whole man is the real monster sort of thing. Yeah, I see that. Because the thing is, is throughout the entire film, is the, the breeder never... Re- oh, I mean, oh, I say they're not ever really the villains, because one of them's a bit of an asshole. But, in fact, a few of them are a bit of an asshole. But, like, they're never truly the villains. They're not going out of their way to purposely harm people. It's the humans who come to them. Yeah. And cause the damage. And, yeah, it is a weird... Because, like, that's how Clive Barker wanted the film to be. He wanted them to be presented as, like, the heroes for a change. Uh, he was like, I want the movie to be about monsters who are, like, heroes. And the thing is, like, they live underground. They live by their own laws. They, like, can't hurt naturals, which is what they kill human beings. What they call human beings. Yeah, it's like, that's what they call the human beings, isn't it? The people that aren't Yeah, they call them naturals. naturals. And um, they just... Yeah, I think that, like, the idea of Midian itself and the mythology of Midian is fucking incredible. And, like, I wish we got more of that in the movie, um, purely because I love the world. And the world building, don't get me wrong, is in this movie. It is here. Like, I think he does a good enough explanation of explaining what Midian is and kind of who these people are. But, like, in, in some respects, this movie just plays out like Labyrinth for perverts. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of does. I'll never be able to look at this film the same again. Or Labyrinth. I mean, to be fair, Labyrinth is Labyrinth for perverts, but like... Sorry, I know you were like looking at me like, what are you doing? I just read something. Apparently Susie Quattro's in this movie and I was trying Uh, to place where she is in it. No, her scene got cut out. Ah. Also, Neil Gaiman's in this film. Is he? Yeah, he's an extra in this film, apparently. Nice. He's on the cast listing, yeah, in the director's cut. He's uncredited, but he's an extra in the club scene. Oh. <laughs> she was, like, looking at me, like... And I was, like, I'm literally... I just wanted to sit in front of it was about Susie Quattro, because I was, like, pretty confident I would have noticed if Susie yeah, Quattro no, she's, popped up. she's not in it. Her scene got cut out. Oh, sad. That makes me sad. Although, do you know what is really interesting? And I love Clive Barker for this. So you know the sequence towards the end before Decker and Boone have that final fight? Yeah. And he's got Narcissus' head on a pike and he says, hello, handsome. In the original original, um, test screenings, they cut that out because the audience reacted negatively to him being killed. So Clive Barker just went, nah, fuck it, I'm putting it back in. Like the director's cut. Like an absolute G. Um, But yeah, I think... 
like I've always loved this movie. Like I, I'm one of those weird people. Like I think we said at the beginning of this like section of the episode, I've never read any of Clive Barker's works. Um, I'm familiar with a lot of Clive Barker's work because, weirdly enough, when and like I'll probably talk about this more in a couple of weeks on the Hellraiser episode. When I was growing up, like Hellraiser was one of the big things, like the big horror things that was in my house, like. Freddie and Jason and stuff weren't necessarily in my in my parents' house a big thing, but like Hellraiser was. Yeah. So I was aware of Clive Barker because of Hellraiser, um, and then like I'd read some Hellraiser comics when I was younger, and I was familiar with Pinhead. And then for some reason, I think I stumbled across. I was at my uncle's house, and we were like looking through VHS tapes to watch, and I stumbled across a copy of this. And at the time, I was quite young, and it was when I just started watching Buffy and Angel. Mm. Uh, or Buffy and I thought this movie had David Boreanaz in it like I thought Greg Sheffer was David Boreanaz because he looks I mean, I that, kind of like him on the cover like so I think I remember wanting to see this movie because he was in it and I saw it when I was quite young which again like is a weird thing to say um, and it's one of those movies like I don't think a not, like it's not a huge film in like the lexicon of horror like it has fans but it's one of those movies, if you go up to someone and go, hey, bro, have you seen Nightbreed? Like, what the fuck is Nightbreed? Like, um, unless it's that guy in HMV who seems to have seen every movie ever. Mm. Uh, shout out to my boy Barney, who's seen everything. Um, but yeah, like, I find it really weird that this is a movie that's grown in, like, cultural status over the last 30 years since it's been out. But, like, effectively nobody wanted to see it when it came out. Yeah. And in all honesty... Watching it in Blu-ray, on Blu-ray, in 2021, knowing that some of the footage was, like, restored from VHS tapes, this movie has aged incredibly well. And, like, the special effects work in this movie is fucking awesome. Yeah. Except that <laughs> there's one, one like, stop-motion shot that's not aged as well as the others, where it's that little creature riding what looks like a fucking... Uh, what's those a dune a dewback? It looks like it's riding a dewback from Star Wars when she's walking through the halls. Oh yeah, it's like the little thing is riding the thing. But like all of the creature effects of this movie, because that's one thing I said to you and that I love about this movie is I love that every one of the monsters that occupies Midian looks completely different and has their own complete. They all feel like complete unique characters. Because it would be very, especially when they had no money to make this movie back in like the late 80s, it would have been very easy to kind of make five monsters that all kind of look the same, but were all different colours. Yeah. Whereas in this, like every single creature looks different, has their own unique personalities. And that's one of the things that this movie lives and dies on. Yeah. Is the fact that all of the, the creature work is exceptional. And Midian feels like a real living, breathing place where these creatures live and like I love that and you know what you know what like anybody that has ever listened to had a conversation with me about films or has listened to one of these podcasts knows that I'm a massive fan of world building like I love worlds that feel lived in they feel real they feel tangible they feel like they're inhabited by real characters which is kind of part of the reason why I love Star Wars so much I mean to get off a horror subject but it's kind of part of the reason why I love Star Wars so much is because everything in Star Wars feels real. Like, these feel like real places inhabited by real characters. And if nothing else, Clive Barker really put the money on the screen in this one. He was like, here are my creatures, here is my world. And you can tell that that part of the story is the part of the story that he really wanted to tell. 
because the director's cut, all of the footage is added Midian stuff. He spends a lot of time in Midian with the Midian characters. And as much as like we say Dr. Decker's in this movie, he is, but he's in like the scenes with Decker in tend to be a lot. There's a lot of them, but they tend to be a lot shorter than the scenes that take place in Midian. The focus really is on the characters of Midian. And yeah. that's what I love. What have you found out? Oh, I was just trying to look up who who did the special effects. Who did the... Um... Ben Keen, I think. Oh. And Ralph McQuarrie did all of the um, matte paintings for it. Ralph McQuarrie is the guy who did a lot of the stuff for Star Wars. Because it was filmed in three sound stages in London and Pinewood. And it was partly filmed in Canada as well. Because they built Midian. Like all of Midian was built, which is really cool. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's that's what I was looking up. Was I just wanted to find out who did, who the team were behind the special. Because what did you think of the characters in this? Because generally, this is the sore subject when we watch these movies. You like either really like certain characters or you really hate characters. But like, what did you think of the characters in this movie? I thought Bo- I don't like Boone. I think Boone's a fucking wet oh fish. Oh my god, Boone is such a pain in the fucking ass. He comes in, he ruins everything, and everyone's like, "It was prophesized." No, he's just a dickhead. Yeah, I don't find him a great <sighs> character at all. No. Um, I mean, I know that they had to have, like, the connection between the two worlds. Like, he who walks between the worlds. Um, but fuck me. He's, as an as a protagonist, he's fucking dreadful. Mm. Um, I really liked Smoke Lady. Rachel. Rebecca, Rachel. Yeah. Okay. Really loved Rachel. And her kids. And her kids. Mm. Um, I said her name, like, twice. Ba- Babette. Babette. I love the pair of them. I quite liked. I want to call her Lisa then. Lila? Nope. Laurie. Laurie, thank you. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, my brain is not working tonight. I really like Laurie as a character. Mostly because she was like a female character who actually like put in some fucking work. See, this is the great thing I love about Clive Barker's female protagonists. They all have like agency. If you look at like Helen Lyle in Candyman and when we get to Hellraiser, Kirsty Cotton, all of the characters that are female in his stories have such good, like agency. Mm. Like she was not fucking about. She was like, I'm going to go down to Midian. I'm going to fuck these monsters up. I'm going to get my man back. I mean, there's no fucking up of the monsters in all honesty. Like she's, the thing is, is she reacts a little bit over the top, but like quite like how people would react in that situation mm. of a, this is fucking terrifying. I think she's a little bit too into Boone for my own taste. Yeah. Like, you could defo do better, and the ending ruins her character quite a lot for me. Yeah. Um, but I really liked her character up until the ending of this film. I like the fact that she isn't told what she can and can't do. She's like, I'm gonna go find my fucking man. Oh, well, there's monsters down there. Fuck this, my man's down there. I'm gonna go sort some shit out. Like, yeah. yes, babes. She's great. Decker I hated. Yeah, I think you're supposed to, though. No, just, I, I thought he was a really superfluous character and I didn't enjoy having mm. him in the film. In all honesty. And David Cronenberg's creepy. <laughs> I, I mean, even the creepy, I don't care. He was so superfluous to the plot. And the fucking priest. The random priest who shows up. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about him. There's fucking no point of it. I didn't, he did not need to be there. 
He's he's there, kind of almost a sequel bait. Yeah, he's there as sequel bait, yeah. defo. Well, apparently in the in the original cut, in the the theatrical cut, he brings back Decker from the dead at the end of the film. Oh shit! Apparently, um, I don't know because we didn't watch that. But in fairness, it's been about ten years since I've watched the um, cut. But yeah, like I mean. None of the other characters really. I liked. I liked the monster of Midian more than I liked any other characters, bar um, Laurie. In this entire film, and I, I also loved the recognition in your face when he said the line, and you were like, "Finally, I can hear that line in context." <laughs> yeah, because there's that one line from this film that I say like all the time. There's that one. I can't remember what his name is, but the multiple arm guy. The fat guy with the arms that oh, grows yeah. out of his stomach is really fucking cool. He is and his mate with the devil horns. Yeah. And he said, yeah, he has some like really cool lines in this movie. He's like, y'all come back now, you hear? And he's like, when he fights the dude at the end, uh, and he like, the, the little tentacles have got the eyes on, and they pull the dude's eyeballs out. That's really fucking cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some really cool characters in this. Like, and that's what, like, gives me hope. And the thing is, right, the thing that makes me laugh about this is this movie was a fucking flop when it came out. Mm-hmm. Yet it spawned, at the time, two video games, mm-hmm. a comic book, a Hellraiser crossover comic book. Mm-hmm. They brought the comic back in 2012, because mm-hmm. I collected the comic that followed the storyline on. And then, like, they've released, like, merch from it since. Like, I was like, for a film that, like, failed, they released a lot of, like, stuff behind it at the time. Because mm. um, the fucking video game's hilarious. <sighs> Thing is, I enjoyed this film. I like the creature design. I like the special effects. You know I love a good practical effect. Yeah. Big fan of it. And they aged fucking well. They did age well. A lot of practical effects do, though, because you're not relying on, like, shitty technology. Mm. You're doing it by hand and putting effort in. Yeah. Stop using shitty special effects. Just get somebody to fucking create your shit. It's fine. I'm not angry. Um, But the problem with this film is part of my brain goes... I really enjoyed that. But another part of my brain goes, it made no fucking sense. Mm. This film is so confusing and it makes zero sense. I do wonder, though, if you kind of overcomplicated it a little bit. Because the plot is fairly simple. Like, Decker clearly wants to get to Midian. He but no- why? Because, as he said, he said, that, he said, I've been cleaning the world of the people. But no, the thing is, though, is my, my point with that why... Is that until Boone's character actually goes to Midian, Decker has zero interest in being there. He's literally, he's not even trying to get to Midian when he finally reaches Midian and the monsters. He's trying to get to Boone. Mm. And Boone is fucking dead as far as he's concerned. But he knows that Boone is still alive. Yeah, I mean... Like, there's so many just plot points in this that my brain go, what the fuck? And I feel, I feel sad because I know you really like this film and I'm basically I'm doing the same thing I do for every film you like. I'm I shitting mean, on it. You're not really. Not as bad as you have done with some others, but... But it just, it's just confusing. And I think the thing that makes this film confusing is Decker's plotline. Yeah. That's... So basically what I'm saying is that this film was really good apart from everything that involved Decker. Yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying to a degree. I do think that there are obviously, like, some elements of his story that don't make any sense. Like, his whole reason for going to Midian is that he wants to kill the monsters because he feels like he's there's, like, this whole self-righteous thing about him cleaning up the world. 
But like he never makes it clear as to what he like because when he sends well they are I mean he doesn't send the police there, the police go there of their own free will. But like as you said, when he gets there he wants to kill Boone. Um but you never really find out why he is beefing with Boone. For the most part of the film, you're you like for the first half of this film you're supposed to believe that he had Boone killed as a way because he knew the monsters would come of him getting to Midian. Like you think that's what his end well, game is. But then I do wonder if the plot line is confusing because of the way that the film's been re-edited into the director's cut. They've obviously taken scenes out and put scenes in, and I wonder if that's though, made it confusing. Is that... I don't think he ever killed him to turn him into a monster so he could get into Midian. I think the original plan was kill Boone, Boone's dead, I frame him for all of my murders. Yeah, but then he's not... He's like an addict. He's not going to stop killing just because Boone's dead. Yeah, but you don't really fucking... I, I, I feel like nobody really ever thinks that far through when they're a serial killer, but they're like, aha, I'll pin all of my murders on this person. They kill them and they're like, shit, I can't kill anyone else because then it'll be obviously me. Mm. Fuck. Like, everyone thinks that shit through. I say with absolute confidence, the woman who's never murdered anybody. <laughs> yeah. But do you know what I mean? Like, because that's the thing is he's trying to use Boone as a patsy because he tells the police Boone is the person who's been doing it. He has tapes that prove, apparently, that Boone was the person doing it. Not that we ever hear any of these tapes. We do. No, we don't. There's literally the scene where he sat, Decker is sat at a table, and I said to you, he looks like a Yakuza guy with all of his knives around him, and he's oh, listening, yeah, to, one he's the listening tapes, to one of the tapes. Oh, yeah, he's listening to one of the tapes. Sorry. Apologies. Um, and then he gets the police to shoot Boone, which only makes sense in the context of trying to get him blamed for all the murders, but you are right, he wouldn't be able to kill anyone else after that. Yeah, so like, what is his end game? Well, I'm assuming it was he cleans up a city, frames someone for the murders, moves on somewhere else. Yeah, maybe. But it seems like such a weird thing. Like, I could understand it if he was trying to get to Midian to become one of the monsters. Mm-hmm. Like, if his subplot was similar to, like, Topher Grace's in Predators. Like, in Predators, all the people... In the third Predator movie, all the people that get kidnapped are, like, um, trained killers, essentially. Mm-hmm. And they get hunted. And then Topher Grace's character is a doctor, but they think he's innocent until the end when he, like, fucking goes all Harold Shipman. And he's like, no, I belong here. I am a monster. Like, I belong on this place with these people. And he goes full serial killer. So it makes sense if that was kind of Decker subplot was like, I I should be their leader. I should be the one that is there because I am the true monster. But, like, yeah, you are right. His motivations are very convoluted and very confusing. But... Again, I do wonder how much of that is because this movie has been edited in different versions. They've clearly taken some parts out to put other bits in. Mm. And I do wonder if that's what made... But, like, I agree with you. I think his subplot is the weak... Like, as cool as Decker looks, as cool as the fucking mask and stuff looks... And the thing he... is, though, is they could have just made one of the monsters look like that. Yeah. Like, as cool as he looks as a character, he is kind of pointless to this film. Um, and, like, he doesn't... Yeah, he doesn't really... Um, Add anything. He doesn't really alter the change of the like. I don't know. What I'm it doesn't really alter the flow of the film if you take that character out. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really alter the outcome. Like the no. outcome is still going to be the same regardless. Um, but then the thing is, like, what would have been like? What would have been the subplot otherwise? Like, what would have been the thing that like drove him to Midian in the first place? Who? 
Boon. Yeah, like ha- like the, the dreams he was having about Midian. Yeah, but like <coughs> what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm what I'm getting at is like if you take the Decker subplot out, what do you replace it with? Like, what is the inciting incidents? You don't need to. Literally, Boone has been having dreams about Midian for years. That is a reason enough to go and try and find Midian. Hmm. Yeah? Yeah. And then if, like, even if they didn't do that, but he got in an accident and ended up at the hospital, at work. He has an accident. He was, so he works in a garage on cars, has an accident on a car, ends up in the hospital, meets um, Narcissus. Here's him talking about Midian. Goes, holy shit, is it the place I'm dreaming about? Maybe is that real? He finds out where it is and he heads to Midian. Mm. Yeah, I just think, I think they needed something to get from point A to point B and I don't necessarily think the thing that they chose was the best. But like, the thing is, is what I'm saying, so even without that subplot, it's very easily, I came up with that in what, three minutes on the fly, sat in a room. Mm. I I don't make films for a living. Um, And then you can easily like, I don't know, so something has happened because he still needs to die in order to become a, a member of the breed oh no something else has happened elsewhere and Boone's car was at the scene cops show up think he's got a gun shoot him done <laughs> the exact same plot line and then just instead of having Decker show up at the cop station and be like he's actually alive you have somebody at the hospital one of the other police officers the really angry one who works for the sheriff's department see Boone leave the hospital. And mm. that's how they get all the police medium. Mm. Like, I, I really... The thing is, if, if you took out Decker's plot, I really enjoyed this film. Mm. I loved the Midian bits, and I loved the stories of the monsters and the idea of, like, humanity being the villains, which we are time and time again, because humans are the worst. But I just feel like... It loses something with the Decker subplot. Mm. And I think that's my main issue is it takes something away from basically a story that's about the punishment of outcasts and like the treatment of people who are different. Because that's what this movie is about in actual fact. It's the treatment of people, the way we treat people who are different and the way we tend to fear things that are different to Mm. us and react with violence. Like, that's what this film is about. And the Decker subplot doesn't add anything to that and, in fact, takes away quite a lot from the actual story of this film and the message of this film. Yeah. And I, it really, really pisses me off. Yeah, I don't I don't disagree with you. I think I think the problem is now, though, like, the Decker character is so synonymous with this film. Like, he's almost become... Why, though? Iconic. He's not even the most interesting character no, I know, in the but film. I think it's because Story-wise or visuals-wise. I think because of the mask. People, like, dig the mask, man. But the, to be fair, it's not as interesting as the mask is, and it's pretty cool. It looks kind of like Sam's mask mm. from uh, Trick or Treat. It's not even the coolest character design in the film. Fucking Narcissus's design is amazing. Yeah. There's a there's a tag team and what's his name as well the guy who who fucking bites Boone. Oh, I can't think of his name. I the guy, the red guy with the dreadlocks. Yeah, he looks awesome. Mm. There's so many great. There's a guy who is basically just this huge, massively obese <coughs> dude whose face and head is like coming out of his stomach. What? I like the guy that first attacks Boone. That's got a crescent moon face as well. Yeah. 
His head kind of looks a bit like a banana. The guy who rules the breed, who has four pairs of eyes. Oh, Lylesberg. Yeah. yeah. Like, there's so many amazing character designs in this that, like, when I'm going to, like, later on, when I'm going to have to think about this movie for whatever reason, I'll be talking about it. I can guarantee you fucking Dr. Dickhead is going to be bottom of the list of <laughs> characters I remember from this film. Because, like, character like yeah okay cool the mask is pretty cool yeah there's a um, design wise it's not the most interesting interestingly designed thing in this film no i was gonna say though before i like you get too far off because i tried to mention a second ago that it does work that mask does work in other mediums because there's a tag team in aew called the butcher and the blade Mm. and the blade wears the mask to the ring and I will say, like, from a visual standpoint, I can see why the mask has become iconic, but not necessarily the character, because the mask looks cool as fuck. It does look cool. But, but it's, it's not the most interesting design. No. That's what I'm saying. And the thing is, it's an actual fact. Decker's story is kind of interesting. Like, I would watch a movie about his character, mm. but just not in this film. Yeah. I agree with what you were saying about it being like a mishmash of styles. But I do kind of find that a lot with Clive Barker's adapted works is that there's always some kind of subplot away from the main plot that doesn't quite work. Hmm. Like in Candyman, I don't fucking need that subplot with her husband being a knobhead shagging his fucking assistant. Like I don't need... Like I understand why it's there. But that doesn't take away from the story that they're portraying. And it doesn't break the momentum of of the story in any way shape or form it fits fine oh man i'm gonna be so interested after you've watched this to hear what you think about hellraiser in a couple of weeks because fuck but me this breaks the flow of the story mm. repeatedly there's one scene actually particularly now that you've said it that does feel really pointless in this movie and it's the one where he's fucking torturing the dude because the old dude like knows where the monsters are and he's got him tied up with the christmas lights that's a fucking pointless scene yeah there's no reason for it that is really pointless um, the scene where he tortures and kills... What's her face? Char- Charlie? Charlene? Charlene. We don't see him torture or kill her, but it happens. Charlene. Completely pointless. Charlene. Doesn't need to be in. Also, why does he keep hunting down Laurie? Hmm. Well, in the theatrical cut, I believe he kidnaps her because that's what he uses to draw Boone out. I think I'm right in saying that. Because he kidnaps her. Yeah, I think in the theatrical cut... He kidnaps her to draw Boone out. Like, she's the thing that he will, like... Because he says it in the director's cut. He's like, your death will be what draws Boone out of hiding. Mm. I think he kidnaps her at one point. Um, But it's been a long time since I've seen the theatrical cut. But yeah, like... So, one thing I will say to you... Mm. Like, and I'll ask you this question again. Because we mentioned about long-form storytelling. There is a TV show of Nightbreed in the works. Mm, Michael Doherty's going to direct it. Who Mm. did Trick or Treat. Mm-hmm. and Josh Dolberg is writing and producing it. Okay. He's the guy who wrote Jigsaw and Spiral. He's uh, a films of, I've never seen, okay. He's a friend of the podcast. He follows us on, in, on Twitter. Fair enough. Films I've never seen, but please continue. Um, and they're talking about doing it for like a streaming service. Mm-hmm. I don't know which streaming service it'll go to. Do you think, because obviously it's not going to be the same plot as the, the, the film, mm-hmm. it, do you think this story and this world would work better in a long-form story sense than just a film. Do, like What I'm asking you, basically, is now you've seen this as a film, would you like to see more of this world in like another film or a TV series or other mediums? Yes. 
As long as it's focused on the monsters. Well, it would be a follow-up to the film. So, uh, theoretically, Dr. Dickhead would be dead. So it would be, like, how Boone and Laurie restart Midian, I guess. Yeah. If it leads on from the end of the film. Yeah, I'd watch that. Well, it depends on if which version of the cut they're going by. Because if they go by the director's cut, the theatrical cut, Dr. Dickhead's still alive. Well, the comic books followed the director's cut. So I would imagine... The director's cut, as it's now Clive Barker's true vision, that is what's canon to whatever okay. follows it. Yeah, in that case, yeah, I'd watch, I'd watch some sequel. I'd watch a TV show about it. I quite like the monsters. I'd just be really interesting to find like more about the monsters. Because the thing is, as well, is we find out during the film like little bits and pieces about how they like they fall from like ancient tribes and you know the tribes they, of the moon, the tribes they? of the moon, and you know they kind of existed for centuries under under us and you know we'd we'd hunted and killed them all i'd love to find out more about like the different tribes and like where the monsters actually came from why we started hunting like i know why we started hunting in the first place because humans are dickheads but you know what i mean like there'll have been an inciting incident that would have caused us to start hunting down the monsters originally and that would be really interesting but yeah, as long as they focus on the monsters and not on little fucking side quests that don't need to be fucking brought into it. I really like the way that the monsters govern themselves. And I like the whole thing with Baphomet. I thought that I was like Baphomet. Good. He's kind of like their god, like their idol. He's the thing that gives them like all that knowledge and their wisdom and like their prophecies. Because he's got that little like fucking cauldron, isn't he? And they put it's a little hand- prophecy cauldron. They put the hands in the cauldron and they're like, this is like... I like Lylesberg, man. This is the thing, like, so... I know we mentioned the Cradle of Filth album at the beginning. Mm. So the Cradle of Filth album is called Midian. It's not actually a concept record about the thing. Like, aesthetically, the album has the Gates of Midian on the front cover. If you've never seen the album cover, it's got the big Gates of Midian on it. It's got some of the monsters and all the booklet has got, like, different monsters and stuff Mm. on it. Because I had a lot of sick shirts with the monsters on when I was younger from the Cradle of Album. Um, There's only one actual song. So the opening track is called At the Gates of Midian. The second track, Cthulhu Dawn, is about Cthulhu. But the, there's one track on the album called Tortured Soul Asylum, which is actually based on the film uh, and the story Cabal. And Doug Bradley, who does narration on a couple of the tracks on the album, actually replies, reprises the role of Lylesberg in that song. Mm. So there's kind of like a mini little sequel where he's kind of played the character again in it. But it's really cool, like... But I'm not surprised, given how horny and how weird this movie is, that Cradle of Filth went, yeah, let's fucking do some shit on that. Because <laughs> horny and weird is Cradle of Filth's like, whole thing. That's literally like their tagline, that Cradle of Filth, horny and weird. But like, Midian's my favourite Cradle of Filth record. It's the first Cradle of Filth record I ever heard. Let's be honest, actually, no. Cradle of Filth's tagline is scared or horny. Both? Both is good. Yeah. Um... And I love. Oh, no, what, no, what is the actual quote? Oh, mark me down as scared and horny. Yeah. that's Cradle of Filth. And I love, yeah. I love the fact that they, like, I don't think they would have been able to sustain a whole album. Like, oh, I mean, they might have done. They've done concept records in the past, but I like the fact that they took the idea and like created their own like kind of world mm. based on this album, like this film. Um, and I love, I love the song "Tortured Soul Asylum." Like, I think it's a really unique and interesting kind of story, but. Given where the title Midian comes from, like, that's my little shout-out for Cradle of Filth. If you haven't heard Midian, go check out Cradle of Filth, awesome. Um, 
But given where the name Midian comes from, I don't think it really has a lot to do with, like, the Bible aspect of it. No. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting that he chose to call the place Midian. I mean, Midian. I know very little about... I mean, I know very little about the Bible in general, but the story of Moses is, like, one of the gaps and the knowledge for me for the Old Testament. Like, I know about the story of the plagues and stuff, but where, like, where the fuck Moses was before he saved the Israelites has never yeah. really been... I don't really care. He, he spoke to a bush, he, they were like, go save the Israelites. He went, yeah, all right, God. And then he fucking did it. Um, so I don't really know a lot about... I know he was in Midian. as He'd basically been exiled for murdering an, an Egyptian. Egyptian man. So, yeah, where is Midian? Midian's, like, in... Jerusalem. Or I have no like. idea. It's in that. It's in the Far East because Jerusalem's in the Far East, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. So it's it's somewhere. It's somewhere that way on. Or it wouldn't be. I don't know if it's called that anymore, but it was a real place mm. um, at one point. Um, I just think I just find the idea like I find the idea that he chose that name possibly for its like religious connotations. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more to the story of like the actual real Midian yeah. than just you know. And like the idea of he ex- lived there for a while. Like the idea of exile and exiled creatures living there, like you can draw the parallels very easily. Yeah. But I think for someone who's like not a religious person, like Clive Barker, I think it's fascinating that he chose mm. to kind of do that. But yeah, but it's even it's even this like little things like the the fact that the god in this is called Baphomet, Baphomet, which is very similar to Baphomet. Yeah. The uh, one of the. Is this the 16 names of Satan? Yeah. 16? He's he's the cool goat guy. Is it the 16 names of Satan? I can't remember. There's a there's a list of names of Satan anyway. Yeah. Bathomet is one of them. He's the cool goat guy. But yeah, I think... Yeah. He's, he's also the iconography used for the satanic church, mm. generally. They did that cool statue of him. I just I just find the whole, like, if you want to make the connections, the connections are there. I mm. think the whole thing is fascinating. For me, this might... Like, I don't want to say it because Pinhead is sat behind me staring at me and he's going to freak me out. He's going to chain me up if I say bad things about him. Don't say bad things about Leather Daddy. Um, but yeah, I, I I go back and forth as to whether this is my favourite Clive Barker thing that I've ever seen. Because I do love Hellraiser. Um, but I do think that just generally the fact that this is a standalone thing and it is so fucking weird... And so aggressively horny in places, mm. just kind of makes me go, yeah, I kind of like this. Like, I think it explains a lot of the, kind of the person I became when mm. I was older. <laughs> um, but I guess we should rate this sucker. What do you rate at Nightbreed? Uh, I'm gonna give it. How many Decker masks out of five are you gonna give it? Fucking zero. Drink out in Decker masks. I'm gonna give it three months out of five. Cool. Just because, actually, um, four. I'll give it a four, because I'm, I'm adding an extra point for that special effects alone. They're fucking stunning. But I am removing, at three and a half, because I'm removing a point for Decca, and I'm removing half a point for uh, Laurie's fucking ending. But then you're going to put half a star back in for Danny, Danny Elfman's banging score. No, that was one of the earlier stars. Yeah. Three and a half um, stars. We didn't talk about that, actually. Considering it was a low-budget film by a second-time director, getting Danny Elfman to do your film well, is I amazing. I guarantee you fucking Clive Barker's got, like, fucking Tim Burton on Steve Speed style because they're both weird, kooky men. 
And he was like, oh, you could call Danny and get him to do me a score on the cheap. Also, how fucking busy was Danny Elfman? He did the score for Batman, which came out in 1989. Or alternatively, he may have just got in contact with Danny Elfman's people. And Danny Elfman was like, I like quite a high Barker. I'll do it on the cheap. Because like, you forget as well, like, he did some big films that year. Well, and he would have been getting paid through the yeah. fucking notes. I can guarantee you more than likely he did this on a... A mate's race. Well, this is what I'm saying. He did this in 1989. He did he did Batman in 1989. This. Then he did Edward Scissorhands. Then he did fucking, um, like, Batman Returns all in a four-year period. I don't think he actually composed a score for this movie. I think he used B-sides from his Batman score. <laughs> you realise that I don't think anyone could hear what you just said. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't trying... I don't want Danny Elfman to... F- Have you seen how big that guy is? I don't, I, want don't Dan- I don't want Danny Elfman to come fuck my shit up. I'm always surprised when I see Danny Elfman and he's ginger. I don't know why. I always assume he'd be a goth. And he's super hench. I don't know. Like, he's he's massive. He's built like John Cena. My brain's like, it's the man from Ongor Bongor. Mate, Danny Elfman looks like John Cena in a carrot top wig. You know there's a fucking Ongor Bongor Oingo Boingo song in this film. Yeah. yeah. But not sang by Oingo Boingo. Boingo. It's a cover. Yeah. My favourite thing. I love, o- I love Oingo Boingo. Um, but... Fucking difficult <laughs> set of words to say next yeah. week, I can tell you that. Um, but yeah, his score's actually really fucking good for this. Yeah. Like, at the beginning, it feels very Batman-y. But I, I feel, feel like... Know, it doesn't. It just feels very Danny Elfman-y. Yeah. Not... It feels like every other Danny Elfman score you've ever heard in your life. Not as much choir in this as I was expecting because his scores are very like he does like a choir he's like a a choral yeah Um, so yeah that was our thoughts on Midnight Mass now showing on Netflix go see that shit and the director's cut of Nightbreed which is still one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen next week um, may actually be our final episode you didn't give it a square out of five yeah I gave it a five no I gave it a four no it's a four it's a four five for Midnight Mass four for this um yeah, next week's episode may actually be our final episode. I may actually cease to exist after next week's episode. Um, <laughs> next week we are covering The Exorcist. So enjoy this episode. Enjoy the episode that's coming on Friday because we're doing a 5x5 five five on our favourite horror parodies. That's coming out on Friday. Um, join us next week for The Exorcist. Um I don't think we're going to cover the version you've never seen. Maybe. I don't know which version we're going to watch yet. It's either going to be the theatrical or the version you've never seen. Um, it will be whichever episode, whichever version I can sit through the most of. Um, and then basically Simon's going to retire from the podcast and I'm going to have to replace him. Yeah. Next week's episode might actually kill me off. I have to, be, to be fair, depending on how you react to that movie, it might just we both just may cease to exist after that. I mean, I feel like this movie's going to go one of two ways for me on my yesterday. It's either going to be, oh my god, this is fucking terrifying, turn it off, we're not finishing watching it, we'll just so we can finish it and do a half episode. Or it's going to be, what the fuck, why is everyone so scared of this film? Yeah, I guess we'll find out next week. But if it's too scary, I am getting you to turn it off and we'll just do a half episode of it, Lee could not finish this movie. Yeah, we will. we will see. We'll see. Um, so yeah, that was our thoughts on that stuff. If you want to come join us on social media, S-I-M-A-H-F-Pod on Twitter, uh, SimaRadaHorrorFan, Instagram and Tumblr. Come leave us comments, likes, tell us what you thought of Midnight Mass. Slide in the DMs though, don't like put it in the TL, don't ruin it for people. Um, yeah, next week is The Exorcist. Friday, this Friday, Horror Parodies 5x5. Next week is The Exorcist. Um, yeah, and stay safe and we'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.